really excited. Everyone loves the word discipline, right? Everyone's cheering. No, you're actually all yawning. I know. Discipline is not a fun word, but the idea of spiritual disciplines is that we become self-feeding Christians. Self-feeding Christians. The front row gets excited about that. Because it's usually the front row that gets approached by people who are not self-feeders. And so the idea is that we become a church filled with self-feeding Christians so that you can have a revelation, so that you can walk in the Spirit, so that you can experience the real transformational power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so over the month of January, we're going to be touching on this theme, hunger and thirst. The scripture tells us, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. It's a promise. It's awesome. And so we pray that as we cover these ideas, that it will stir something in you. And you know what? Even if only a quarter of us get it, I'll be happy. I'm believing for more. But I'm really believing that we go to another level in our walk with Jesus. Okay, so did you know there are actually 12 spiritual disciplines? 12. They're on the screen, hopefully. 12. There they are. Sam spoke about the word this morning. I encourage you to get that podcast. I encourage you to do your soap journaling. Um, then we've got worship, prayer, fasting, celebration, solitude. There's 12 of them, and we're going to try to journey through them this month um, and share this around. But um, this evening, I wanted to talk to you around worship. Worship. And when I say worship, often it's easy for us immediately to think of what we just did, where we sing songs um, in a service. And I started in the worship team. When I was 13 years old and I gave my life to Jesus, I joined the choir. I thank God for choirs. Amen. Anyone with me? And the creative team is, is this amazing catchment for so many people. It's an amazing place where all sorts of people come in and they learn amazing foundations on team. And what happens on the creative team is you learn really practical things like melody and harmony. You learn things like pitch and tone. Praise the Lord. Amen. You're all grateful that we teach our team pitch and tone. Yes. We learn things like posture and movement. We learn things like dynamics and blending. And then, you know, the longer we stay, we learn slightly deeper things like what it actually means to be a part of a team. I'm a part of a team, which means I need to be reliable, which means someone else is depending on me. I'm a part of a team, which means... I might need to blend in with the person next to me and compliment the person next to me. Suddenly I realize this isn't all about me. Being a part of a team, I know that's news to someone here. (laughs) Being on team teaches us that actually I have a responsibility to hone my gift. I can't just turn up. I actually have to be diligent with this thing that God's put on my life. We start to learn deeper things like what it means to steward the presence of God. We learn deeper things like what it means to have humility in order to be able to honor. We learn things like intimacy and purity in order to facilitate the presence of God. We learn these beautiful, deep things on team. And I want to encourage anybody here, you don't even need to be able to sing or play an instrument. And if you can't do one of those things, come on a Tuesday anyway and learn these foundational things. It's a powerful place, and I reckon people who join the music team are set up for life. 
set up for life, and I was a part of it for a really long time. But while a song service is a part of what worship is, worship is much, much more than that. It is much more than that. Worship is not just the songs at the beginning of a service that you use as a buffer to get to church late. (laughs) Worship is much more than that. The Webster Dictionary defines worship as honoring with extravagant love and extreme submission. Let's just close the service and go home. Worship is actually extravagant love and extreme submission. And you can see that if we actually lived our lives just out of that definition, how all-consuming that is. It is not just 15, 20 minutes, half an hour on a Sunday. It's our whole life. And so tonight I want to share three thoughts with you as I teach you on this spiritual discipline of worship. And hopefully by the end of tonight you'll understand why it's a discipline. Three ideas. Why we worship, what worship is, and what worship does. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, so why we worship. It's really important for us to understand that we're created to worship. We are by design created to worship. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, King Solomon writes this, a powerful, powerful truth. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has planted eternity in men's hearts and minds. A divinely implanted sense of purpose working through the ages, listen, which nothing under the sun but God alone can satisfy. That's the very wordy female version of the Amplified Translation. The shorter version says, he has put eternity in the hearts of all men, which basically means every single person, whether they know Jesus or not, has this haunting suspicion that there's more to life than what we see right now. Every single person will attest to that. Every person goes, there's something else going on here. There's more to this. And so the truth is, though, that nothing in the earth can satisfy that suspicion except God. So good luck. Go on your mission. Try to figure that out in every other way. I'll see you in five years when you've tried every other thing and you're still unsatisfied. The truth is nothing in the earth will satisfy that gut desire, that deep craving other than God, because God put it there and he designed us to worship. It is a part of our design. Be assured that you will worship something. You will worship something because it's a part of your design. It may not be Jesus, but it will be something. We are designed to worship and we do it because that's what we long for. And so the truth is when we look at the world today, we see people worshiping all sorts of things. They worship money. They worship their career. They worship, what do they worship? They worship pleasure. Some people work just so that they can buy the next jet ski or powerboat or whatever it is. They worship all sorts of things. People worship fame. They want to be famous, they want to be noted, they want to be seen. People worship one sexual encounter after another. We see people worship sports personalities, singers, actors, leaders. It's a part of our nature to worship. We all worship. But I pray that tonight, 
as we go through this, I can divert your awareness so that you understand you are worshipping, but you can choose now what you worship. You choose who you give your worship to. You are created to worship, so you will worship, but who will you give it to? Because the truth is this, who or what you worship is what you become. You worship what you become. You become what you worship. And so tonight, it's also awesome for us to understand that this God who created us is the only one worthy of our worship. He's enormous. There is no end to God. There is no limit to Him. He created everything we see. He's huge. He's boundless. He's limitless. He's also really, really good. God is the best. He is faithful. He is unending in His love. There is no one bigger than Him, no one better than Him, no one more deserving of our worship than God. Francis Chan said this, isn't it a comfort to worship a God that we cannot exaggerate? So you can use every extreme adjective to describe God and you won't be overdoing it. You cannot over-exaggerate God. Our own senior pastor, Pastor Mark Ramsey, always says, if God was small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. God is the only one worthy of our worship. And you may have heard me teach on the names of God. And I want to draw us back to one particular name, which is Seboath, an ancient Hebrew name, which means the Lord of the angel armies or the Lord of hosts. You may have read it in your Bible. It's in scripture more than, a, more than 280 times. What this means is, it means this, and this is important as I set this up for us in understanding why we worship, is that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies, has spiritual cohorts. He has a militia that he has assigned to different roles. So the angels fall into three categories. There are three cohorts. Did you know that? The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies, has three cohorts that he's um, ascribed roles to. The first one is led by Archangel Gabriel, and these are the guardian angels. These are the ones that are charged with your care. These are the ones who communicate with you. So when we see in the scripture that an angel turned up and told Joseph, Mary's not crazy, she is having a baby and you need to stick by her. That was one of the guardian angels, okay? And we have Gabriel over that. So basically in charge of telecommunications between God and man, right? (laughs) Then we have the second cohort, which is led by Archangel Michael. These are the warring angels. These are the ones who fight for you. In Daniel, in the book of Daniel, we see that the moment Daniel prays, God hears and dispatches angels. The angels are on their way, fighting in the background of Daniel's life, trying to get the answer to him. Do you know every time you pray, God hears you and he dispatches part of the cohort to come to you to deliver your answer. The problem is you don't know the junk that's going on in the background for this angel to get to you. So we have the Lord of hosts who oversees the guardian angels 
and the warring angels. And then we have Archangel Lucifer, who was head of the worshipping angels. Now, some of you may know who Lucifer was. And in Ezekiel 28, I want us to read together a description of this amazing angel, Lucifer. In Ezekiel 28, it says, You, speaking of Lucifer, had everything going for you. You were in Eden, God's garden. You were dressed in splendor. Your robes studded with jewels, carnelian, peridot, and uh, moonstone, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald, all in settings of engraved gold. A robe was prepared for you the same day you were created. You were the anointed cherub. I placed you on the mountain of God. You strolled in magnificence among the stones of fire. From the day of creation, you were sheer perfection. And then imperfection, evil, was detected in you. In much buying and selling, you turned violent and you sinned. I threw you disgraced off the mountain of God. I threw you out, you anointed angel cherub. No more strolling among the gems of fire for you. Your beauty went to your head and you corrupted wisdom by using it to get worldly fame. I threw you to the ground and sent you sprawling before an audience of kings to let them gloat over your demise. By sin after sin after sin, your corrupt ways of doing business, you defiled your holy places of worship. Scripture tells us in several places that Lucifer, the head angel over the worshipping angels, became filled with pride. He wanted, all of a sudden, to absorb the glory he was designed to reflect. He wanted all of a sudden to become like God. And scripture tells us that Lucifer, the most beautiful, remember that word, beautiful, the most beautiful of all God's creation, Lucifer, the most beautiful of all God's creation to that point, wanted to set up a throne in heaven above God and rule creation in God's place. And so God says to him, Lucifer, it's your choice. You can stay in relationship with me. You can stay here with me in my presence and you can be a part of what we've got going on here. Or you can pursue this life of pride and selfishness and choose not to stay in relationship with me. And Lucifer chose. He turned his back on God and God threw him out of heaven. And it says in scripture that he took about a third of the angels with him. Be careful who you hang around. Because Lucifer took a third of the angels with him and they were cast out of heaven. Now no longer called Lucifer and angels, they're called Satan and demons. Now the reason, are you still with me? The reason this is powerful, we see in Genesis, when God comes into earth and he starts creation. Now imagine this, Lucifer, or Satan, who was Lucifer, has dwelled in obscurity for God knows how long between his fall and this moment. He's in the dark shadows of the void of earth, and he senses God. He has not sensed God for who knows how long. And God comes, and he starts creating things. There's stars, there's trees, there's animals, there's all these sorts of things, and Lucifer's just like hovering around, watching all this happen. 
And all of a sudden, something changes and God creates something else, but he doesn't do it just with his words. He actually stoops down and dotes over this one. He stoops down and he picks it up with his own hands. Lucifer's like, what's going on here? And then he hears God say, let's make them in our image. Let's make them just like us. Well, this gets his attention because that's all Lucifer wanted, was to be like God. And so God's forming this thing and loving this thing, and he watches as God's making this. Then he hears God say the greatest sting he could hear. He calls man and woman the same root word, beautiful, that he used once to describe Lucifer. So not only is man now beautiful in Lucifer's place, he's also just like God, which is what Lucifer wanted to be. He hates you. He hates you because you are everything he wanted to be. He, you are what he wished he could be. You are the glory of God. You are the goodness of God and God calls you beautiful. And the thing is this, Now, because there isn't a worshipping cohort as such, there are angels who worship in heaven, but I want to tell you the mantle of worship has been transferred to you. That's why we worship. We worship because there's a roaring lion named Satan who roams the earth and the only way that you can beat him as his, at his own game, his agenda against you, is to beat him at the, the game he refused to play. And that is worship. That is ascribing worship to the only one who deserves worship. That's why we worship. We worship because God, as his sons and daughters, ascribed that role to us. It's so important. It's so important that we understand the call of worship has been transferred to us. John 4 tells us that there is a time coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For God is spirit, and we must worship in spirit and in truth. We're created to worship. A.W. Tozer said, Any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. That's why Lucifer couldn't stay there. Amen? It's important for us to understand we were created to worship. So what is worship? that's why we do it, then what actually is it? Well, quite simply, friends, worship is a response to God. It's a response to what we know and experience about God. Because the more you know God, the more you want to worship Him. The more you encounter Him, the more that desire to worship Him bubbles up on the inside of you. This is why I love seeing mature men and women get softer and softer and softer in the presence of God. Because you cannot know more of God and get harder in your heart. You cannot know more of God and become bored with worship. The thing is, we respond in worship. Worship is our response to what we know and what we experience about God. We worship Him for two things, for who He is and for what He's done. For who He is and what He's done. In Revelation 4 and 5, I'd love for you to read it this week. In Revelation 4 and 5, it talks about this scene in heaven. And in heaven, God is sitting on His throne. Can I tell you, that is His rightful place in your life on the throne. (laughs) He's sitting on the throne in heaven 
and there are four living creatures and they're crazy looking and they're circling the throne and they're worshipping him and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're worshipping him for who he is. They understand who he is and that's all the worship they ascribe to him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then we see a little bit further on that also in that space are 24 elders and these ones have their own thrones in the presence of God on his throne and they're on their thrones and they have crowns and in response to this worship they fall down off their thrones and they throw their crowns down and they say holy is the Lord who was and is and is to come. Holy is the Lord who died, the lamb that was slain and takes away the sin of the world. They worship him for what he's done. So we worship him for who he is in our lives. We worship him for what he's done in our lives. The powerful thing is this, church. The reason it's a discipline is because you have to remember who he is. You have to remember what he's done. You choose to remember who he is. And what he's done. G.K. Chesterton says this, We are perishing not for a lack of wonders, but for a lack of wonder. God has done wonders all about us. We just lose our awe. We lose our wonder. Sadly, over my years in ministry, I've seen many, many people walk away from God after they've received their miracle. Sometimes I wish God wouldn't grant us our requests because it keeps us on our knees and it keeps us hungry. Too many of us, like the nine out of ten lepers, get our miracle and go, thank you very much, I'm going on my merry way. There was only one leper out of ten who came back and thanked Jesus. We are dying not for a lack of wonders. We're dying for a lack of wonder, for a lack of worship, for a lack of thanks. That's why we perish. He is good. He is endlessly good. And our heart of worship keeps us in that place. It's a discipline. So we worship him for who he is and what he's done. Worship is just a response. And so what does worship do? Three quick things. Worship restores order. Restores order. Psalm 97 verse 9 says, For you, Lord, are most high, over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. Worship restores order. The angels, the the four living creatures are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worship is about God. It's not about you. Worship is about God. It's not about you. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I didn't get anything out of the worship this morning. I'm sorry, sweetheart. We weren't worshipping you. (laughs) (laughs) Worship corrects order. It corrects the order of things. And sometimes when we get a little bit too big for ourselves, we just need to worship because it corrects order. It corrects the right order of things. And a flow on from this is the second thing worship does. 
is it transfers authority. I want to ask you, who has authority in your life right now? Is it the financial report? Is it the doctor's report? Is it that person who spoke over you many years ago? Is it the person who left you? Who has authority in your life? Because there's only one person who deserves authority in your life and there's only one person who can turn things around for you and that is the Lord God Almighty. So in worship, you take authority from the the financial report and you give it to Jehovah Jireh who is your provider. In worship, you take authority from the doctor's report and you give it to Rapha who is your healer. You take authority from the depression and the anxiety and you give it to Shalom, who is peace. You take authority, come on church, you take authority from loneliness and rejection and you give it to Emmanuel, God is with us. Worship transfers authority. It gives power to the right person. It gives power to the right person. The elders are casting down crowns, they're falling off their thrones. The truth is God has a crown for you. He has a throne for you. He created Lucifer to be beautiful and encrusted with gems. It's not about being downcast. It's not about being worse off. But it's definitely about being in a place where you are guarded against pride. You make sure the right order of things is happening in your life. And at any given moment, you'll fall off your throne and cast down your crown and transfer authority to the only one worthy of worship. Psalm 56 verse 3 and 4 says, When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What can my circumstance do to me when I put my trust in you, God? Transfer authority. And finally, if I can have the team back up, worship soothes the soul. Worship soothes the soul. If you want to know how to worship God from the deepest valley, you need to read Psalms. If you want to know how to worship God from the mountaintop, you need to read Psalms. If you want to know how to worship God from every place in between, you need to read the Psalms. Because David teaches us what it means to give God worship no matter what season we find ourselves in. David teaches us how to correct ourselves so that we can give worship to whom worship is due. Worship soothes our soul. Did you know your soul is your mind, will, and your emotions? And so when we worship, we remind our mind, our will, and our emotions that God's got this. Psalm 42, verse 11 says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Saviour and my God. You know, I find it interesting that as fear of God has declined in our culture, every other fear and anxiety has been on the increase. It's no coincidence. But worship corrects things. It soothes our soul. Worship soothes our soul. As I was thinking about this, I remembered just that truth that God actually discloses things about Himself in the quiet places we carve out for Him. A few mornings ago, I was walking with my daughter. It was really early in the morning, so early that there were no cars out on the road. The sun was just rising. It was still cool. It was early. 
And she said to me, I can hear everything. I can hear the bugs. I can hear animals moving. She said, do you reckon that during the day they get scared and they kind of hide and they stop making noise? I said, no. I think we stop hearing them because they get drowned out by everything else. And I said to her, we went on to talk about how that's like our relationship with God. We get so busy in the noise of life that we can't even hear Him. And so many people say to me, how can I hear God? I'm like, just shut up everything else that's yelling at you and you'll be able to hear Him. You need to carve out space, quiet space in the still, in the moments. You need to make that time because He will make disclosures about Himself when you pull away. He's always speaking. He's always reaching out to us. We just can't hear Him until we make space to hear Him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me tonight? I want to offer some ministry to two groups of people tonight. And the first group of people, I want to offer you an invitation to make Jesus the Lord and Saviour of your life. I want to invite you to be in Christ. I once made this decision and it was the best decision of my life. It was a moment just like this and someone explained to me the craving that I had on the inside, helped me understand that my only hope was Jesus, that nothing else could satisfy that craving. And maybe tonight you've heard that same message and maybe I have the amazing opportunity to have been that messenger for you. But I want to tell you, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit saying to you, hey, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I am what you're longing for. I am what you're craving. Would you come to me? And tonight I'm going to count to three. And if you want to respond and make Jesus the Lord and Saviour of your life, on the count of three, just raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out. It's just an indication between you and me and God that you want to make this decision tonight to make Jesus the Lord and Saviour of your life, to put God on the throne of your life. So on the count of three, if you want to respond, raise your hand. One, hey friend, He loves you and He's reaching out to you tonight. Two, He's not angry, He's not disappointed. He loves you and He has great things in store for you. Three, if that's you, would you give me a wave here tonight? Thank you, I see you there. Thank you. Anyone else here tonight? Anybody else here tonight? Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you for this amazing opportunity that you've given these ones to meet them exactly where they're at. Father, I thank you that you come in like a flood and you fill that void, that void that all of heaven is rejoicing and we rejoice with heaven too. All of heaven rejoices when that one lost sheep is found. And today, Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I thank you for a heart that is responsive out of a place of repentance to say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry and today I respond. Today I come back. Today I want you to be the Lord of my life and to save me from these things that I've been a part of. Father, I thank you that in this moment, Lord God, you extend grace and mercy and forgiveness. Your word says that you wash us white as snow. Father God, that you 
you cleanse us and you adopt us as your sons and daughters. I thank you today for a new journey. The old is gone, the new has come. In Jesus' name, let's give them a round of applause. Well done. Well done.